This is an ABC podcast. Adolescence. It's generally understood to be the period of life between the ages of 10 and 19, when an individual transitions from childhood to being an adult. But some researchers believe there's a change underway. Adults themselves, adult society has come to be kind of infused with a variety of adolescent qualities, things we would traditionally think of as quintessentially adolescent. So things like being relatively impulsive and brash, being disinhibited, things like not necessarily being as fully committed and persevering with things, being more inclined to jump from one thing to the next, not having that sense of, I say, sort of commitment and duty to things like even things like voting, for example, having a sense of civic duty. Which brings to mind that old Noel Coward song, What's Going to Happen to the Children When There Aren't Any More Grown-Ups? Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Life today is hectic, our world is running away. Only the wise can recognise the process of decay unhappily. Now, some health experts argue for a wider definition of adolescence to better suit the modern world, stretching out its end point from the age of 19 years to 24. But Paul Howe, a professor of political sciences at the University of New Brunswick in Canada, believes adolescence isn't so much a time of life as a state of mind. What I mean by that is that, you know, a lot of people these days, really, they, they want to have fun in their lives. I mean, that maybe becomes sort of a principal focus for people. There's a lot of diversions, entertainment options, and that's what a lot of people want to do rather than maybe focusing a bit more on some of the, you know, the serious issues that confront us. So in a lot of ways, yeah, about the idea then people sometimes chafing against some of the restrictions that they feel are there and feeling like they don't have to follow them, they don't have to follow the rules. And you argue that this began with universal secondary education. Uh, Just explain that to us. How so? Briefly, I could say what I don't think it is, or at least I don't emphasize, is a lot of people would say it's about to do with our modern fast-paced lives, that we live in this environment these days where the the economy forces us to be quick and nimble. Technology is all around us, giving us all sorts of distractions and so on, and these kinds of things. So I develop a very different argument and suggest that really the roots of this go far back in time. They do go back to the period when we introduced universal secondary education, which differs from country to country. I focus quite a bit on the United States. So in that case, we're talking about the early 20th century when this really began. And by about the 1930s or so, you had a good majority of young teenagers in in the United States attending secondary school. But the key part of the argument then, though, is that, that this really then transformed the socialization process for young people, that historically, a young person after doing primary school, let's say, would have entered the adult world. They would have started working, they would have maybe on the farm, maybe in some other occupation, but they would have been exposed and interacting with adults on a consistent basis through their teenage years. Once we introduced universal secondary education, now young people through those teenage years were interacting with peers. And that was very different. So it led to a much heightened emphasis on peer influence in our lives in those teenage years. And the effects of this run deep. It's not just about, you know, wanting to wear the same clothes as your friends or these kind of more minor influences. 
Studies on the formation of personality and character suggest that these teenage years are very important in terms of the type of person we become, and that peers can have a very strong influence on us in those years. Sometimes that influence is, is that we want to actually model ourselves after someone else, but sometimes it's just a much a matter of validation that the kind of person we are as a teenager is being validated by those around us who think this is a good way to be, to be more disinhibited, a bit brash, maybe a bit impulsive. And so the argument then becomes that these traits that were becoming more deeply imprinted in the teenage years started to be carried forward to adulthood. And that this was kind of a long social process that began before World War II through the inter-20s and 30s, and then continues on over time as people socialize in this way, you know, become part of adult society and start to have these transformative effects. And it accelerated in the 1960s. Yeah, the idea is that the effects sort of, yeah, start to accumulate. And, you know, part of the idea is then if you could identify sort of the first group of teenagers to have this experience, well, they would move forward to adulthood. And then, of course, they'd be subject to all the normal pressures of, of the adult world and they would undergo a certain natural maturation process. So because of that, you know, it's not as if they arrive as fully formed teenagers in adulthood. Instead, you know, it's, it's a modest effect, let's say, with the first generation. But once those people become part of the adult world, that starts to change the adult world. It starts to change the way in which people, for example, start to parent their own children. They become more accommodating of their teenage ways of some of these traits that I've mentioned. And so with successive generations, the effects can become sort of stronger and stronger. I see the 1960s as sort of when this all sort of explodes a bit. Uh, and we do really see the strong emergence of a very clear youth culture where people are clearly, you know, taking their lead from their young uh, friends and, and so forth. But I see there haven't been a longer gestation process for these things that happened as a result of a more pedestrian phenomenon, which was simply that young people started to go to high school with one another. And these kinds of traits started to take seed in the adult world. When did individualism, though, become central? to the idea of being an adolescent? Because what you're talking about, according to your theory, these people that we now know as teenagers, they became a cohort. They bonded together in a sense and, and were sharing their time together. And that was important. When did we become I? Well, that transformation, I would say that the seeds of it were always there. I guess what I would say is we often think of individualism as this sort of ethos, this set of values that at some point people decided to embrace. And typically it's the 1960s that people point to when this individualistic ethos sort of swept over Western society, really, especially the younger people at that time. And it's reshaped our societies ever since. What I'm sort of arguing is that the seeds of that came earlier and that they came not so much in the form of a sweeping ethos, but really in terms of just everyday qualities, habits, behaviors that young people started to inculcate in one another. They started to express them more freely. And that then, as I laid the groundwork for a more cultural or social change that we see when we talk about a new era and ethos of individualism sweeping over society. We've talked a lot about the downsides. Do you see benefits in, the, in this development, as you said? Well, I do. There's really one very important benefit, which is the way in which when you have a more individualistic society and people believe in those ideas and principles, that also implies a more tolerant society, a more open society. You know, if I want to express myself, I want to be free to do the things I want to do. And if we extend that to everybody, then that implies that we're more open to those who are different from us, who want to live different kinds of lives, who are from different, you know, ethnic and cultural backgrounds and live differently. So this adolescent mindset, this adolescent spirit 
which I, I think that's been the principal contribution. The benefit has been the way in which it's helped us to become a more tolerant and open society, at least in terms of underlying public values and attitudes. Do the downsides, though, do they outweigh that benefit, particularly in an era where we're facing enormous challenges to our politics, to our environment, to just society in general? Yeah, I think that's we have to ask those questions now. I mean, it does mean that we're not as able to come together as a, as a society, as communities in order to address difficult problems. And obviously, right now, we're looking at one of the most pressing problems, climate change, and and not, you know, we're not going far enough to try to tackle these things. And I think part of the problem is, yeah, that the citizenry is not necessarily willing to make the kinds of sacrifices and that would be necessary in order to do that. And then I also would see a range of sort of impulsive, individualistic behavior in the support for people like Donald Trump in terms of politics that there were some of these kind of almost adolescent qualities coming forward in those who would support him. So on balance, hard to say, really. I think we we have a lot of problems to address. I think they're difficult to address, given some of the underlying traits I've described. But I, at the same time, you know, the fact that we've become more open and tolerant is a pretty major benefit over the last century. Professor Paul Howe, thank you very much for joining us. Okay, well, thank you, Anthony. Another academic inviting us to question our assumptions is Samuel Moyne, a professor of jurisprudence and also history at Yale University. Professor Moyne is a noted scholar of human rights, and he's been exploring how rights connect to global economic fairness. Inequality is a growing problem, as we know, and rights are meant to ensure essential fairness. But that often doesn't mean equality, according to Samuel Moyne. A lot of people have complained that human rights have, in a sense, become so exclusive a language for thinking about the good life that everyone converts every cause into the framework they provide. And I guess what I'd say is that human rights were always intended to be selective, identifying some really important non-negotiable items in our morality and politics, but they, they left out inequality as a a wrong that, you know, we've embraced more and more in the last few decades. And so my objection to human rights is not that they're, in a sense, taking up too much space. It's that they're not ambitious enough. If we go all the way back, we find that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which the United Nations General Assembly announced in December 1948 comes at the high tide of the welfare state when coming out of World War II, states are committing not just to a kind of minimum of the good things in life, but, you know, fair shares for all and a a commitment to class moderation. But when human rights became famous in the 1970s, they kind of got detached from that welfareist ideal because neoliberalism was breaking through at the same time that human rights, especially concern for the most terrible atrocities and the worst kinds of misery became central. So one of the events in our time, which is hardest to explain, but most important, is that in the last 40 years or so, we've both remedied more poverty than ever while creating more inequality than ever. And human rights have fit into that universe, working on the worst off and trying to make sure 
they're not as indigent as before, but never challenging the expanding inequality, class inequality, that's become a hallmark of a neoliberal age, especially in the Anglophone countries like yours and mine. And that means we need other frameworks for justice and movements to secure justice that human rights, you know, can ever become. Is there a blurringness now to what we know in the 21st century as rights or what we think of as rights and human rights? It, it seems to me when you look at some of the anti-vaxxer protests, some of the protests you know, in support of Donald Trump in the United States, say, the idea of rights and human rights came very much to the fore, but they were what some people would see as a perversity of the idea of human rights, the ideal of human rights. It's a, a really important question. There's, let's say, been some success in defining a pretty robust agreement around what we should consider the most important rights. And it, it took a lot of time and a lot of struggle. In the 19th century, people considered the most important right the freedom to engage in contract in the marketplace or to own property without interference. And we've created a whole new list of human rights that, at least in theory, we take more seriously, including basic civil liberties against abuse by the state, free speech, and so forth, as well as these economic and social rights that are getting more traction. But it doesn't mean the list is set eternally. And there are always going to be people who want to revise it, stripping it down, adding to it, minting new rights. And the only real question is whether they win the day. So as of now, I'd say that the list that we got in 1948 from the United Nations has proved surprisingly stable. But that doesn't mean it can't change. And it doesn't mean there aren't people who are trying to create their own new human rights movement. They've generally failed. And so I think the important question for now is, given the importance of the rights we know and recognize in the Universal Declaration and subsequent instruments, what else do we have you know, cause to do morally? And equality, at least more equality than we've seen, seems part of that list, even if it doesn't rise to the level of a human right. Does a focus, though, on human rights without a grounding in the, I guess, the tradition or the history of where the arguments over those rights came from, does it lend itself to a kind of entitlement idea, a, a sense of, you know, I'm owed by my culture? Well, that's a tough question because, you know, I'm a historian, so I believe that we only have our moral ideas and our legal protections when they've been historically created. But a lot of people will tell you, especially if they have a more philosophical bent, that the fact that people only discovered some right or other or one list of rights rather than another in history doesn't mean they weren't always there. That would be like saying relativity, you know, didn't exist before Albert Einstein discovered it. And so I would give the answer that in our political struggles, it really matters that we reflect on how contingent and sometimes recent our understanding of our rights is, which means we can build on those rights and reorient the movements that we've crafted to secure them and demand new things from government. At the same time, we might conclude that human rights as a whole is just one thing one moral 
enterprise, one legal regime, and demand other ones, including more egalitarian arrangements. So we're not just talking, if we want more equal societies, we're not just talking about reframing our understanding of human rights or the list of human rights, if you like, that we have. It's much more about building structures around identified rights. Is that correct? I'd say it depends. You know, there's a debate about that. Of course, you or I could say, well, why not just mint a right to socioeconomic equality? And it would all by itself require higher taxation and redistribution from the rich to the rest. If we took that route and succeeded, then we have a new right and it's enforced thanks to a movement and ultimately thanks to government and law. I'm skeptical that it would work out because it just doesn't seem like human rights movements are the kinds of movements that can gain traction with the galloping inequality that we increasingly face. Human rights movements haven't done well with the rights that they already have to secure for the worst off, including those very basic economic and social rights for a bare minimum of the decencies in life. Why would we think that they could become like the trade unions and socialist parties that in the era when there was more equality in our welfare states secured those goals? And so my sense is not that human rights are necessarily kind of condemned to fail, but that we know of of movements that have already done better and they just differ in kind and in strategy from the human rights movements with which we're familiar. You know, my sense is that especially as the welfare state has declined, taxation has gotten lighter, human rights have resonated with a world in which a lot of people want to be free of collective obligations. And the human rights that have done best are those that are more libertarian. They're about keeping the community and the state at bay. And again, that's really important when the community and state are oppressive. But we also live in community and under states that have important duties, including duties to do better with social justice in the case that we're talking about more egalitarian social justice. And so I'd prefer to say there's definitely a risk when people think human rights is all that justice requires. And when they reinvent all causes that they might have, even if they're less important or different in terms of human rights. But I don't think we should talk as if human rights are just, you know, themselves risking oppression by just imposing too much obligation on people. Actually, people have insufficient obligations and are taking their morality that I think ought to be involved in living together and in the society and on a planet more seriously than they have in recent decades. Professor Samuel Moyne from Yale University. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Yes, it's coming to that time of year again. And given the economic stresses the world has faced, there's bound to be calls to get out there this Christmas and spend up big. 
that message will no doubt appeal to a lot of people because consumption has become such a part of the way we live. But a life without limits is actually limiting, according to our final guest, Joshua Becker, from the website Becoming Minimalist. He talks of reframing our understanding of minimalism as a means to an intentional future. When most people think of minimalism, they think of owning fewer possessions, owning just the stuff that you need to live the life that you want to be living, which is true. And I advocate for that. There's no sense in buying and owning a whole bunch of stuff that you don't need. But minimalism goes beyond that. When I define minimalism, it is the intentional promotion of the things we most value in life by removing anything that distracts us from it. You talk about us having a a, a passion to possess, don't you? And breaking free of that. You know, I think that we all have passions. There are all things in life that we want to accomplish and we want to do and be known for. And there are different ways that we would define those passions. I think what happens in this society that is so built around consumerism is that advertisers, marketers, corporations, big interests, they come in and they show us all these advertisements. They convince us that we need to buy new things. And it's almost like they hijack our passions. It's like they almost begin instilling inside of us this desire to possess and this desire to accumulate when If you really were to dig deep in your heart and your soul, there are greater things to be pursuing with our life than physical possessions. But this is how we end up living most of our days and spending our money, unfortunately. And culturally, we do tend to, or it seems as though we tend to celebrate excess, don't we? We were intrigued by people who live lavish lifestyles. Yeah, you know, I I just think that there are you know, more than one way to show success, but it tends to be the easiest way to show success is with our external appearance or the size of the house that we live in or the car that we drive or the model of the phone that we just purchased. And this tends to be how most people define success, but obviously there are greater ways to define success in terms of living aligned with your values, making a difference in the world. And oftentimes making a difference in the world runs counter to buying a bigger house and a nicer car and spending money on things all of the time. We know that there are environmental considerations to take into account when we talk about excessive consumption. But you point out that there are also mental health and overall well-being issues to factor in. Yeah, which is interesting. And it's a, a helpful way, I think, that I frame the conversation. And it goes back to how I discovered minimalism because I I didn't grow up this way. I was pretty typical suburban middle class here in the U.S., but it was on a Saturday morning that I was introduced to minimalism when I went out to clean my garage and my five-year-old son was asking to play with me, but I just kept pushing him off as I was working on the garage. And it was my neighbor who introduced me to the word minimalism. She said, I was complaining about how much time had gone into this project. And she said, well, you know, that's why my daughter's a minimalist. She tells me I don't have to own all this stuff. 
And I remember looking at the pile of things I'd spent all day taking care of and suddenly realized how all the things I owned were actually taking me away from the thing in life that meant the most to me, which is my son. And so that is how I was introduced to minimalism. It wasn't from an environmental concern or an environmental push. Obviously, the more minimalist life you live, the better it is for the environment. But my introduction to it wasn't around that topic. And so when I talk about it, I'm usually using phrases like, hey, there are things more important in life. There's a a life that you want to be living greater than the things that you own and pursue. And just think how much you could free up your life for more important things if you weren't so focused on possessing, accumulating, and chasing the next thing that advertisers would want us to buy. Because that takes up a a lot of our time, doesn't it? Or or certainly takes up a lot of some people's time. I am convinced that most people, I certainly was one of them, most people don't realize how much of a burden their possessions have become until you begin to remove them. Because it's not just the pursuit of possessions, but it's everything that we have to take care of. Everything that we own, we have to clean and organize and manage and maintain and repair and replace. And just think of all the time we spend working just to make more money so we can spend time shopping to buy the thing to bring home to clean and organize and manage and maintain. And in many ways, we, we live our entire lives just managing and chasing more and more stuff. And the, the less we own, the less we desire to own more, the more we free up our time and money and energy for things that actually matter. And when we talk about minimalism, is it important to make a distinction between that and frugality, the idea that you will be doing without? So minimalism looks different from one person to another. It's also not frugality. You're right. Like there are some people who are frugal who are minimalist, but it's not necessarily the same thing. In fact, one of the things that I discovered is that the fewer things I owned, the higher quality things I could own. If I didn't need 20 pairs of pants in my closet and I just needed three or four, I could own a nicer set of three or four or watches. Oh yeah, if I didn't have to own five watches, I could own one nicer watch. And so being cheap and being minimalist aren't necessarily the same thing. There can be overlap for some people, but it's not required. Which comes to the point of understanding ourselves and our our true needs, doesn't it? Not being directed perhaps by others who, who will happily tell us what we should have and what we need to purchase. It was quite a deal when I, my wife and I, we got rid of about 60, 70% of our things. And as we were going through this process, I was surprised at how deep the questions I was asking myself became about what am I going to keep and what am I going to get rid of? And I remember asking a friend about it and I just mentioned, you know, hey, I'm really surprised at how deep the questions have become as I'm just trying to minimize my possessions. And he said, it seems to me that minimalism would force questions of values upon you. And I said, that is exactly what is happening. It's like I'm taking back control of my own life and deciding what is going to be most important rather than allowing the world just to shift and sway me with culture and trends and fads, but instead really focus on the things that bring me meaning and joy and significance in life. 
some would argue that by limiting yourself, you limit your ambitions, that you should actually strive for all you can get, all you can achieve. Your response to that? Yeah, I agree entirely that everybody should become the best version of themselves that they can possibly be. That minimalism isn't about checking out of life. It's not about laziness. It's not about doing nothing with your one life. Instead, it's about focusing our life on more important pursuits than owning physical possessions. And so it allows us to live a more ambitious, more focused, more passionate life focused on things that actually matter. Joshua Becker from the website Becoming Minimalist. We also heard today from Samuel Moyne at Yale University and Paul Howe from the University of New Brunswick. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.